This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's workplace podcast. Welcome to today's workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Good morning to today's Workplace Podcast. During our last episode, we had a great discussion with Rob Falk, General Counsel of the Truth Initiative. And Rob was able to provide us with great insight into the history and evolution of LGBTQ challenges and rights in the workplace. Today, we're going to discuss analytics and diversity metrics needed to support a robust employment compliance and diversity strategy for an organization. We're absolutely thrilled to have with us John Geyer and David Cohen of DCI Consultants to walk us through and, and talk about the use of workplace analytics in supporting any employment compliance and or diversity programming that you have today. Welcome, John and David, to today's workplace. Before we begin our questions, please tell us more about your professional background and how it brought you to your work of helping employers use data and analytics to support their compliance and diversity initiatives. Well, I'll start with that one. And, and, and so nice to see both of you and, and, and to be here today uh, with your audience. So I'm a recovering lawyer. I was a partner at a big law firm uh, for, for many years. And the primary focus of my practice well, began with, I was working for uh, federal contractors and their relationships with the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, a department within the United States Department of Labor that administers equal employment and affirmative action laws for federal contractors. So, and in that, uh, I began to develop a quantitative practice looking at representation and uh, adverse impact on employment processes. Uh, that practice morphed into helping employers with their diversity efforts and pay equity. I retired a couple of years ago and my good friend David asked me to, to come over to DCI and, and work. I'm no longer a lawyer, happily, and uh, I'm working with clients on diversity DEI projects and pay equity projects primarily. Um, but uh, I think I'm going to turn it over to David to really talk about the efforts that DCI gets involved with with employers. Yeah, thanks, John. And 
Thanks, uh, Barbara and Belinda, for, for inviting us. This is a topic that uh, I love talking about and, and certainly passionate about. We've been doing this for a long time. And, and as John said, you know, the D DCI, we're, we're very data-driven at DCI. And, and the firm really started with doing affirmative action plans and pay equity analytics. And that's kind of uh, where we kind of cut our teeth in the metrics, you know, throughout the years, we've kind of broadened what we do to do DE and I analytics, which which I'm excited to talk about today because it kind of fits into the broader piece of not only compliance but but diversity. Um, but we also, you know, work with employers using data and analytics to to look at and validate their their selection systems, their performance appraisal systems job analysis and, and things like that. And, 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 and we think that, you know, a, a, a robust program takes a look at all of those things. And, and we'll talk about that today. Uh, there, there's not, you know, just one piece to an effective program. It, it really is looking at lots of different uh, aspects of, of employment and employment decisions that, that all go into a successful program. Okay, well, thank you. What are data analytics um, and how are they used in connection with DEI programs? In other words, how can an organization use data analytics and metrics for their DEI initiatives related to the employment life cycle? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And, and like I said, I've been doing this for over 20 years. And uh, so my background is in industrial psychology. So it's, it's very data driven, uh, looking, looking at employment data. And I remember when, you know, when I first started, DE and I uh, firms out there, but it was more programmatic right? More training, which is, which is great, right? I mean, I think raising awareness, um, removing barriers is, is certainly important, but we always brought an analytics approach to whatever we were doing. And, and, and we'll talk more later on about affirmative action programs and, and how they intersect with, with DE&I programs. Um, but I've always taken the approach, and I think our firm's always taken the approach that what gets measured gets done. And the analytics, you know, bring that to the table. So, so I think the analytics, you know, uh, you know, in conjunction with with training and program, um, helps first, you know, identify are there gaps, mm -hmm. and specifically where are those gaps, and then and then right, coupled with with identification of the gap, where are there barriers. Right? Is it a talent acquisition issue that we're just not recruiting? Is it that we just have a word of mouth type of uh, or, or tap on the shoulder type of hiring practices? So we tend to fill our jobs with the same uh, groups over and over again. Is it that we have performance issues in terms of uh, ratings and things like that? Um, is it turnover? Is it that yeah, we, we are employing people, um, uh, uh, women and people of color, but they're leaving at a higher rate. And so one of the things that we like to do is put together these, what we call employment life cycle uh, analytics, which is one, you know, 
is there a gap at certain levels within the organization? And then if there are gaps, specifically identifying what's driving that gap. Is it a talent acquisition issue? Is it a hiring issue? Is it a promotion issue? Is it a turnover issue? And, and when you look at that life cycle of employment, until you can identify what's causing that barrier and impediments, right, you're never going to move uh, the, the needle. And that's what the analytics help you is identify the gap, identify where the barriers are, and ultimately help you to improve your diversity numbers. Um, and and that's, that's why I like the analytics side of, uh, of it, because it's measurable um, and you can see results. I'm going to jump in just real quickly and, and, and just say again, I'm significantly older than David, so I go back a little further in, in, my, in my history of, of how this stuff has evolved. And like everything else, it's evolved. And lots of things have evolved in the, in the DE&I space. I mean, used to be DNR, now it's DE&I. I mean, there, there used to be uh, networks and then affinity groups, and now there's employee resource groups. And I don't know, maybe there's a new name that people are using in the terminology. But diversity, uh, the, the focus on diversity has evolved. When I started and the first dashboard I ever helped to create with a client, it said, here's how many women and employees of color you have in this group. And here's how many were, how many women were hired in this quarter. And, but there was no analytic framework for it. Uh, they're, 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 it it's so much more now so much provides so much better focus. Well, and, and, and I'll add just one more thing, John. You know, it used to be, right, and we would see this, right? It started off, well, well maybe federal contractors were, were focusing on this because they were regulated by DOL. Um, and, and then other, you know, organizations would slowly start to explore uh, this issue. This is no longer an option. If, if you do not address this, and take this seriously, you will be left behind. Um, and, and so it's exciting to see that so many of our clients and so many employers uh, not only are taking it seriously um, and wanting to move the needle, they're getting support from the top down, including the board. And, and so that, that's why I think we are, we are really going to see progress in, yeah. in corporate America. Yeah, and that's that's certainly uh, for those who ha have been uh, doing this for a while. It's certainly a different uh, level of priority that's being attached. Yep. But I I wanted and and this is really really interesting. I like how you frame up, um, you know, the purpose and use of analytics, uh, these sorts of analytics in the workplace. Um, but I wanted to step back for a minute. And, and look at specifically affirmative action plannings because for so long, there were so many companies that used affirmative action planning as their diversity plan. Um, so can, can you just give us the basics? What are affirmative action plans about? How are they created? And do they really have impact in addressing diversity, equity, and inclusion? Let, let, let me start on that one. Going back to the Johnson administration, uh, Lyndon, not Andrew, um, there was uh, a, a, an executive order, 11246, which created, uh, and it has a history, which I won't go into, but it, it created the, the framework for people who do business with the federal 
government, whether as a primary contractor or as a sub to a primary contractor, certain obligations to measure your workforce, measure the representation in your workforce, uh, uh, evaluate your transactional analyses, your hiring, your promotions, your, your attrition rates um, for adverse impact to women and, and employees of color, or applicants of color. Um, uh, it's, it's prescriptive. There's lots and lots of regulations. There is There are some severe, um, in my view, limitations to the effectiveness of it. You have to do it by establishing where in each physical location you look at your uh, those issues of representation and transactions. There are very specific rules as to how you can group employees, um, which leads to less not similarly situated employees sometimes being grouped together for analysis. But that being said, th these limitations, there are there is value, and it's all, it was always my practice to. Uh, help employers squeeze as much value from their plans as possible. So for example, if, if I work primarily, represent primarily employer contractors with multi-establishments, maybe in 10 states, maybe in 50 states, but you could take those plans, those individual plans and say, are there certain job groups that we're seeing underrepresentation, statistically significant underrepresentation of women in the same job group time after time after time? Are we seeing in a specific plan, not only underrepresentation of blacks, but adverse impact to blacks in their hiring or in their promotions or uh, in involuntary termination? So you, you really can, by looking at patterns and trends across your plans or within your plans, really attempt to address diversity, inclusion, equity issues. But the limitations do get in the way and, and, and where I think we're, we're moving and, and corporate America is moving is uh, to go a lot deeper. Yeah, and if I could just add, John, I mean, I, th I think one of the, the the issues with the affirmative action plan is it's it's prescribed under the regulations, you know, and, and, and to your point, right, it's it's driven by establishment. And that and that makes sense if you're manufacturing and you, and you have a brick and mortar and that's how you run your business, you know, plant by plant. But, but as we know, and especially post-COVID, the workforce is changing. And location, we don't even know what a location is anymore. Right. Um, and, and so I think one of the things that the flexibility with the uh, DE&I program is you get to structure your analytics in a way that's meaningful for your business and, and how decisions are being made. So you have a lot more flexibility uh, with mm -hmm. those, and that's why we find that they're much more useful, and the business, you know, buys in on uh, on them because because a lot of times we we see you run these affirmative action plans it's by establishment, and the head of marketing says, well, there are people in my analytics that I have nothing to do with, so you know it, right. it gives you that flexibility. I used to say that if if you walk into the C suite and start talking about AAP job group, you won't be invited to another meeting. <laughs> right. And it's it is going to be really interesting. You bring a good topic up, David, about post COVID, where we're going to see more of the workforce yep. shift to working from home or shift to working remotely or, you know, organizations setting up, um, you know, hubs, you know, in yep. places where, you know, the people live. So it's going to be interesting to see 
if the um, regulation, if the government responds to that in helping these organizations yeah. figure out how best to um, to yeah. do their uh, approach, their affirmative action plans. In yeah. um, speaking of John, you started um, really kind of giving us an indication of the administration, <laughs> you know, that put this in place. And I was wondering if you could just shift to talking about it from the standpoint of the biggest differences from the administration. We have a new administration. And so now, you know, what was before and, and what should those employers that, that have to uh, file affirmative action plans, what should they expect? Yeah, I'm gonna, David has recently given some speech, some talks on that. So I'm gonna okay. turn that one to him. Yeah, I, I'll certainly take the lead and, and chime in here, but wow, was that fascinating. <laughs> Um, at the end of the Trump administration, out of nowhere, we get an executive order that uh, impacted the federal workforce, the military, and federal contractors that basically was a 180 on diversity programs to basically say you need to tread very lightly and carefully if you're going to implement DNI uh, training programs and you, you know, be careful if you talk about unconscious bias and things like that, because you may, uh, you know, uh, uh, offend uh, people to, to even taking a step further to targeting Wells Fargo and Microsoft because of their stated diversity programs. And, 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 and Wells Fargo and Microsoft were very proud of those programs to say, we are going to move the needle. But what was interesting is the administration did not like that these, specifically these two, but it was, I think, much broader, were creating these goals that they believed were arbitrary and throwing out a number, 20%, 40%, 50%, and it was not rooted in, in data. We'll, we'll, hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later on. And so it was interesting kind of uh, interacting with the administration on this, you know, Historically, you know, the, the conservatives didn't like affirmative action programs and were open to DNI programs. And we saw 180 where the White House was backing affirmative action programs, but asking people to pull back on DEI programs. Um, fascinating thing. We knew that if President Biden was elected, uh, he would not only rescind that, um, which he did on day one, right? That was critical rescind 13950 and not only that a replace it with new executive orders promoting dni dei programs and encouraging the federal government the military federal contractors to adopt these programs to continue to do training and i know in my conversations with with the new ofccp not only are they reversing that they are going to launch a new marketing campaign encouraging federal contractors to adopt these programs, to talk about unconscious bias, to talk about some of the other things. So a complete 180 uh, from uh, the, the prior administration. And I, and I think here's what's important. When the prior administration rolled out 13950, you know who spoke out the loudest? Corporate America. Wow. And the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I mean, 
they all stood up and said, we object to this executive order. So that's fascinating. I mean, the, the train has left the station and, and corporate America has embraced this issue because they realize how important it is to their success. That's great. I actually, I actually believe that corporate America, federal contractors are really, uh, have been pioneers and been the real advocates for changing the American workplace. I really do. Uh, and I give credit to 11246, uh, which, I, which I support in, in spirit and intent. That really has changed. I mean, another ex similar example, when President Obama issued the LBGT order, it, it, it didn't cause a ripple across yep. corporate America because they already included LBGT in their protected groups and how they dealt with things. It was like uh, an, a non-issue similar with this, um, with, with unconscious bias training, with diversity efforts. Corporate America's way been doing this starting to do this well before uh, these executive orders. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting that the states had picked up the bandwagon, you know, jumped on the bandwagon um, before the federal government had in many ways. Just recently, the state of Virginia declared racism as a health crisis, right? And it's now requiring every employee of a state agency to have unconscious bias training. So clearly, Corporations are getting it. Some of the states are getting it. And I think with the Biden administration, we're going to see even more of an emphasis in this area. Yeah, we may talk about pay at some point, but, and again, depending on the color of the state, you can sort of predict where they're going. Right. Yeah. And, and I would just say, Barbara, to your point, right? I mean, I think we saw that, you know, during the Trump administration. So, for example, and, you know, there was this pay data collection tool. Um, and a push for pay transparency uh, that, that came out under the Obama administration and Trump rescinded and, and OMB pulled back uh, on that pay data collection tool. And what did we see? The state of California stood up and said, fine, you rescind that. Uh, all California employers, now you will have to file a pay data collection tool. And so we're keeping our eye on that because it, you know, and I hope to talk more about pay later on, pay equity, but that's just not, that, that, that's not even a domestic issue now. It's international. Yeah. And, and we're seeing our clients, you know, if you're in the UK, if you're in France, not only do they have pay reporting, there are penalties, financial penalties, if you are not moving the needle towards pay equity. There's some you know, I think one country has a 1% payroll tax or penalty if you do not start to move the needle. So, so in, in, in some respects, you know, the, the U.S. is kind of behind mm -hmm. e even internationally. And I, and I think we're going to see more coming out uh, uh, on reporting and things like that under the Biden administration. Right. Pay becomes <laughs> fundamentally a DEI issue. Yeah. Yes. I think we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. You know, some organizations approach diversity from a compliance lens and some from an aspirational lens. What are the differences between these two approaches and is one approach better than the other? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a good question. And, and I think there's a third option, which is some employers do both, right? So if, if you're a federal contractor, and John touched on this before, right, you, you are required to do these affirmative action programs by establishment. 
and that's prescribed and it's according to the regulation and there's not a lot of flexibility but what we see is a lot of of at least contractors use that underlying data to help them with their aspirational analytics um so they they layer on top you know they say okay we're, we're going to conduct these these affirmative action plans from a compliance perspective we have those but we're now going to build upon those to build out uh, uh, additional analytics restructure those in a way that meets our business needs and expand on on some of those analytics and and what what i like you know when, when we do that is you've got you've got the underlying data great that data is ready to, to be analyzed it's cleaned up but there's so much that you can do with that data to not only we talked about some of these life cycle analyses um, but there's also opportunity to to do predictive analytics and we've mm -hmm. done that with some of our mm -hmm. clients to yeah. say um, and John and I have worked on some projects together to say, all right, you've done this over the last two years. We have now multiple years of data. Let's use that data to say, right, we all agree the goal is to move the needle. We want more diversity. We need more diversity. We should have more diversity. All right, the last two years, here's what we've done from a talent acquisition standpoint. Here's what we've done for hiring. Here's what we've done for you know, promotions, terminations. If we continue on this trend of what we've done, it's going to take us 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years to get to where we want to go for our aspirational goals. That's not acceptable. So we need to change the way in which we're doing our business from a talent acquisition, so on and so forth. Um, you know, got to it, increase it, the slope. Got to increase, yeah. increase the slope. That seems to, that would be a very powerful discussion. Yep. You know, to show them, keep, if, if you keep doing the things that we're doing, here's the reality of the situation. We're yep. not going to get there. It can't be yeah. generational. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And, and Belinda, sometimes what we see, it's, it's one step forward, two steps back. And let me give an example. So, so a lot of times employers focus on the talent acquisition side, broadening their, their pool and trying to bring in more diverse candidates. And they do a wonderful job of bringing them in, but there are workforce and cultural issues that have not been addressed. So what's happening is you see high turnover rates as John talked about. Um, and so, yes, you're making progress on the hiring side, but if we look at regrettable turnover, we're losing on the back end. So we're not making any progress. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Well, you know, we've we've alluded to a little bit about the paradigm shift that we've seen corporations take in their approach and priority to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And last summer, we saw just increased demands from for social justice from both communities around the world. And um, in response, many organizations, they publicly committed to taking action to eliminate bias and discrimination in the workplace. But many organizations, they're still figuring out how to make good on those bold statements that they made. And um, some companies even just 
pick very specific goals, 20% African-Americans in leadership positions in three years. So I really like to hear from the both of you, what's, what's your reaction and, and what did you see as the next steps that an organization uh, needed to take in order to meet uh, those renewed commitments? It's, it's a really fascinating question and, and phenomenon. You know, I've often run into clients who we've got to increase our diversity. We want to have 50% of our employees be diverse, either women or, 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 or employees of color. And again, as David has mentioned repeatedly, I said, date, we're data driven and there is availability data and an employer can get into, into difficulty or set themselves up for failure in their DE&I efforts by just arbitrarily saying 20% black, okay? When the availability of blacks differs in HR jobs versus finance jobs versus engineering jobs, and you really need to go back to the data. One of the challenges is what's the appropriate benchmark? And we do a lot of work at DCI um, the standard that you use in a compliance program is U.S. Census data. It has its own limitations, but mm -hmm. it's also a very useful tool. But there's other data out there, college data, uh, the iPads data, there's EEO1 data. So looking at, or comparator data, uh, transparency is, 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 is much greater today. So you see a lot of large-scale employers and even smaller employers publishing their their own review of their demographics and you can use those. How do I stack up against competitors in my field? I think it's very dangerous for employers to, to, to set goals, set aspirational targets if they're not grounded in available data. What was that, I, IPEX? IPEDS, and I forget I what it stands for, but it, it's, it's uh, graduate data. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, from higher ed. You know, so if a company post 2020 is starting a concerted DEI effort, or if a company that's had a program that has not been effective is re-examining re that program, what are some of the steps that the employer should take in ensuring that it's not gonna be generational growth, that they're really going to see things that, as we say, move the needle in a real way. I, I can I could take that one, John. I mean, I, I think that one of the first things that I would recommend is take a step back. And if, if you're not making progress or if, if you're, you're, you're not achieving some of the goals that you're setting, um, I, I would say phase one, okay, look at the analytics that you have created, right? And, and, and are they correct? And I think a lot of times what we see is the underlying data is problematic or the analytics are problematic. So it's setting you up for failure and it's not really identifying what is what I call the root cause. Mm -hmm. and, and I think so, so taking a step back, I mean, if you've been doing this for years and you're just going, geez, we're just not making progress. Um, 
first start with kind of a, a phase, phase one, what I call due diligence, like evaluate your program, evaluate your analytics, what are you doing and why aren't they working? The other thing I, I will tell you though, is we see this a lot, uh, 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 and especially I think in, 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 in Silicon Valley, where they have really smart people and data scientists, and they spend 90 plus percent of their time on the analytics and 5% on the of the time on the program or the implementation. And so sometimes what I, I say to clients is, okay, everybody stop. We are suffering from analysis paralysis. Mm. Like we're just analyzing and analyzing and analyzing and analyzing and looking at this way and that way and turning it upside down without taking those analytics and implementing a program. And so that's what I think is so important. You know, the, the, the analytics help guide you on the program. And if that's not what's happening, I think that you're never going to really move the needle. Another example of that is, uh, you know, how do you evaluate your return on investment from your recruiting activities? Okay, mm -hmm. so you can, you can do some similar analysis. Here's our candidate, okay? Here are the people that we're getting to come into our online system and, and seeking a job. How do, and, and, and you're asking, at least federal contractors are asking for, employers should be as well, in my view, their, their demographics, okay? How are, we, how are we attracting Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites, women, consistently with what, for that kind of job, you would expect to see? And if you, if you don't, you know, well, let's look at the colleges we're attending. Let's look at the job fairs we're attending. Let's, uh, let's analyze where we're pulling people from, who we're pulling from those sources, and adjusting our recruiting strategy accordingly. You know, John, if I could layer on that, I, I, I worked on this project years ago for a, a very large city, and, and the mayor was very concerned about the diversity numbers of the city employees, as well as pay equity. And and we came in, we did a full-blown investigation and analysis of the city's workforce. And, and what we identified is, right, no, no surprise, most of the city employees were police, firefighter, and, and worked in the power and light. Mm -hmm. And what we found was they were mostly male and mostly white. And talk to them about their recruiting strategies. And we looked at their applicant data. And guess what? Their applicant data was mostly male and mostly white. And we said to them, have you, have you thought more broadly on this issue? On what is the city doing to go into high schools to talk to students about coming to work for the city? talking about how, you know, uh, the importance of going into firefighter and power and light and so on. And so my point is this, and I think John touched on this, I think employers, especially larger employers who, who have that uh, ability to think more broadly, what can you do to, you know, to expand your talent pipeline going to schools? You know, you know obviously STEM is a big issue. Um, how do we get more 
you know, people of color and women into STEM because that's a, a long-term play, but eventually that will help, for example, the tech sector have mm-hmm. a broader uh, pipeline you know, so, so that you know, ultimately we can diversify, for example, software development jobs and, and things like that. That's great. Well, speaking of um, data, a lot of employers are being called upon to be more transparent in how they re- report their diversity metrics, both um, internally to their workforces, but also externally for purposes of, um, you know, their shareholders or um, even government entities want to see the transparency of that data. And so I'd like to ask uh, either of you to speak on the topic of how has that impacted the way employers approach their collection and analysis of the data that they previously kept confidential or, or many employers, they just didn't even collect it because they were concerned about the legal exposure in, in what they do today. Also, if you could talk about what, what type of legal exposure then do they um, face in this world of more transparency? Sure, and I'll take the first stab at that one. And again, I'll go back. These issues are evolutionary and uh, like you say, Belinda, I mean, again, I'm, I'm now long, I'm on the other side of the privilege these days, but, you know, lawyers instinctively say, don't release anything, keep everything private. And, and that was coincident with what employers thought too, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, institutional pressures from institutional investors, uh, pressures from employee groups internally, the whole social justice movement as well has accelerated this, but there's a, a, a much greater desire on the part of companies, employers, to be more forthcoming, to be more transparent. As a lawyer, you know, you're, you're a problem solver. So, you know, in, in the last couple of years of practice and, and currently when I talk with employers who have counsel, uh, you need to uh, help them develop metrics that won't necessarily eliminate the risk, but reduce the risk, okay? And, and that's what you're really all about because you have to, you know, your client's not gonna come back to you if you're just telling them, no, 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 you have to be creative with them. Now, I will say as a caveat, if you're doing adverse impact analysis on whether women are being hired consistently with their representation in the applicant pool or are are employees of color being paid consistently with others in their job type at their level, uh, those create legal risk in court if you don't do them under the privilege. So I do think there are types of analyses that should still at least be done under the privilege is always the ability to waive them. But in the area of DE&I metrics, I think that's an area where lawyers have seen the, the evolution happening and are much are coming up with ways to help employers be transparent, develop metrics that are helpful and provide focus uh, and, and don't create uh, or don't create as much risk. Yeah, you know, uh, I can't begin to tell you how many times, you know, uh, probably per week we're on the phone with a client who's trying to figure this out, what to disclose, what not to disclose, what's privileged, what's not privileged. And, and I think 
to, to John's point, I mean, the world has changed, right? I mean, just think about now, and I'm just going to name a couple, the activist shareholders, you know, Just Capital, Arjuna Capital, that put out a report every year on those employers that are publicly disclosing, not publicly disclosing, what they're publicly disclosing. Um, I think Bloomberg puts out a report every year uh, on this as well. So there is tremendous pressure on employers to open up a little bit and disclose. And, 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 and that's on workforce numbers uh, and workforce demographics, it's pay. So we see a lot of employers releasing what we're calling these wage gap numbers. Um, now that, that's different than their pay equity analytics, but I think that, I think employers really need to think about this. And, and the business side needs to work closely with legal and, and, and figure out what they are going to disclose. Because here's the thing, I think if you take the position we're not going to disclose anything, it's potentially gonna hurt you from a talent acquisition standpoint, because I think applicants and potential employees wanna know what are we doing for diversity and what are our numbers? Um, and so, so I think that, that thinking through that, and John and I were talking about this earlier, it's like you have to thread the needle between public disclosure and, and maintaining privilege on some of those more sensitive analytics. And I think a, a well-counseled employer, the business side works closely with legal to figure that out and has a strategic plan on disclosure. Now, let's talk about the types of diversity metrics that an employer needs to monitor, um, both if, if they're at the early stages of developing a strategy or if they have already developed a strategy. And if you could focus on um, pay equity, you mentioned that earlier as an important diversity metric, but what are the metrics that employers need to be looking at? Yeah, you know, Barbara, it's a, it's a great question. A lot of times a client will come to us and they're in different phases of this journey. Mm -hmm. Some have been doing it for a long time. Some are saying, you know, uh, we've never done this before. And we're a little nervous because we have no idea what we're going to find. And, and, and what we say is, okay, let, let's walk before we crawl. Uh, actually, let's crawl before we walk. Um, and so let's take pay equity, for, for example. Um, if you've never done a pay equity study, right, my recommendation is just start with base pay. And, and that's, that's a good way of, of getting you out of the gate to start exploring your pay equity initiative. Um, so you start there, you, 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 first thing you want to do is develop, you know, similarly situated groupings, figure out what are the pay factors and run analytics on base pay. Start there. But once you get that under control and you've done that a couple uh, cycles, you really do want to expand that. And that would be my recommendation. Start looking at starting salary. David, you mentioned uh, similar, similarly situated groups. And um, one of the questions I've always had is, 
is that according to what the employer says or is there another standard that they need to be aware of in, in forming similarly situated groups for a pay equity analysis that's going to you know, really help them? Yeah, I, I, and John, chime, chime in here, right? I mean, so you've got Title VII standards, you know, that define similarly situated employee grouping, similar in skill, effort, responsibility, working conditions, things like that. It's, and that, and that, that definition is certainly broader than the Equal Pay Act definition of, of mm -hmm. substantially equal, but I use that as my guiding principle, right? And I think that, that, that's helpful because here's the thing. At the end of the day, you want groups that, of, of employees that are similarly situated that, number one, the business can, can accept, right? And they go, that makes sense, right? If, if I do an, uh, an analysis and I put together software developers, lawyers, and HR generalists, and customer service reps, and I go back to the business and I say, there are differences in pay, their response is going to be, well, of course they are. There are. And that may, doesn't make any sense. So, so the, the, the groups have to make sense. And I think, like I said, you know, Title VII guides us on that. But more importantly, here's the thing, right? If those groups that you put together are not similarly situated and the pay is very different, that's going to negative, negatively affect your analytics and you are going to get false positives and false negatives, which is the worst thing, because then you're you're focusing on areas that are not problematic and missing areas that are potentially problematic. So I think the, the most important thing for the first year that you do this is come up with similarly situated groups. And those groups may be the same groups that you're using in your DE&I analytics as well, but, but it is critical that you get that right. I just like to go back to the original question, and 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 I think it it is important because I think pay is and performance really are the cornerstones of DEI today because they affect everything else. But if you're just starting out, just as David says, to start with base pay, start with with your participation rates in your different groups in terms of representation. That's the starting yeah. point for a mm -hmm. for a company in terms of understanding its demographics. You know, take a snapshot. What, what, what is, and have your appropriate benchmark and compare your current representation, your current participation rates of women, African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera, against some availability um, and do it a year later and a year later. And then in between, talk about those life cycle things. Again, that's the more advanced stage is to try to understand what's moving that representation, that participation number year over year. Good. Well, we've come to um, a time where uh, we want to hear a last word from each of you. Um, this has been a great conversation and there's so much more that we could be talking about. Unfortunately, you know, time, time is not our friend right now, but uh, I know that we can get a few more nuggets out of both of you. So why don't uh, both of you take a shot at giving us the top three pieces of advice you'd like to give any employer who's seeking to build a stronger DEI 
analytics within their organization or, or stronger uh, compliance programs? Uh, what, are, what are some of the top three things that they should do? Yeah, I could take a stab at that. So, sure. So, so first, right, uh, garbage in, garbage out. And what do I mean by that, right? That, that the most important thing is you have the right data. Um, and, and so employers who are, are starting this journey need to think about the data that's being housed in their HIS system, in their ATS system, and, and make sure that data is being captured accurately. The second aspect of that is, right, if we're doing a DE&I analysis, well, we need good data on, you know, protected groups. And, and so also think about, right, so if you're just collecting data on, on sex, we're starting to see employers start to think about uh, collecting data on, on gender identity. And we may see that continue. Same thing with LGBTQ. We're starting to see employers starting to have self-identification forms on that. For federal contractors, collecting data on disability, um, veteran status, the more data that you have and, and, and the more participation in that data, so people self-IDing, the more robust your analytics can be. Second, right? Okay, now you're going to do analytics or you're, you've been doing analytics, what questions are you trying to answer? And are you structuring your analysis properly so that you can answer those questions properly? And then the third thing, the most important thing where so many people miss is the implementation part. You've got these great analytics, you've identified gaps, but you don't do anything. And so don't forget about the third piece on the action plan. Yeah. And that and those just, three are a good recipe. I think. I, I think that is that is yeah. the recipe. And I'll just end with one one additional thought on what I always call diversity business plans. So you do your analytics, and again, your your, your different parts of your company are going to have different analytics. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 good to have sort of an overall diversity business plan for your entire enterprise. But one of your uh, lines of business may have a recruitment issue, one might have an attrition issue, and one might have both. And you really need to look and differentiate those organizations, those departments, those lines of business, and develop a targeted business plan to implement programs to, mm -hmm. to, to deal with whatever what the different metrics are going to show. Wonderful. That's my last word. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good one. <laughs> it is. Well, we'd like to thank you both for providing us with so much valuable information and insight into developing effective DEI programs to address the pressing issues of today's workplace. We know you have lots of materials and some of those um, you'll be providing to us to include on our website. So we invite the audience to um, visit the website for more materials to supplement what has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed thank you. it. Take care. Yeah, I appreciate it. John, and thank you, David. Thank you. Bye. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K 
P-L-A-C-E dot com.